Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of uh, First, Tim, First Kings. Excuse me. Hopefully you, are, uh, you do have a Bible and you can follow along with me. We are in our series on Elijah, a man like us, talking about the biblical prophet Elijah. We kicked that off last week. We are going through this in our small groups as we are dissecting and examining this prophet of God's life. And we see this guy appear in the midst of spiritual and moral decline. We talked a lot about his background last week. Uh, suffice to say, I don't want to go through all of the details, just highlight it, is he shows up in this period of time in Israel's history. Israel is God's people where they are divided as uh, uh, the people of God. They are divided in between north and south, kind of like in our own little world in the Civil War period of time where we had north and south. They are north and south. He shows up in the northern kingdom to speak against God's people because God's people had turned their back on him and embraced a false god by the name of Baal. And their king, their leader, a guy by the name of Ahab, is leading the charge along with his equally as wicked, if not more, wicked wife by the name of Jezebel. Because we learned last week she is the daughter of a guy named Eth Baal, who is the king of the Sidonians, a kingdom to the north of Israel. And he was a bloodthirsty tyrant who is zealous for Baal worship. He taught it to his daughter from the time that she was young. She grew up, married Ahab in a political alliance. And then she, when she, as we talked about last week, when she moved in to the palace, she brought with her bags, baggage, and bales. And she led the nation in this moral decline. And Elijah shows up and speaks against King Ahab, and he says, there's not going to be any rain, according to my word. And you wonder to know if, if Ahab took him seriously. I mean, imagine if someone were to show up today and said, the snow is not going to leave. First, after punching him in the mouth, <laughs> uh, no, we probably wouldn't do that. We would say, whatever. The snow is going to leave. We know it's going to warm up. The seasons are going to change. And that snow is going to be gone. But what if it became March, the snow stayed? You get a little bit worried. April, there's a problem. May, some of us just might say, it's Chicago. <laughs> June, July, and it stayed. Now, here's what, this is what occurred, is that he says there's not going to be any rain, and you wonder, want to know how seriously he took him. But that's exactly what happened, is God closed the heavens, and there was no rain, and there was famine across the land. And famine was inescapable. I mean, one could run from war, one could hide, one could, could get away, but famine, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you were old, it didn't matter if you were young, it didn't matter if you were wealthy, it didn't matter if you were poor, it was inescapable, and it affected everyone. So he declares, we saw last week, as he shows up to this wicked King Ahab, and he said, it's not going to rain for, uh, until I say so, basically. And then God immediately takes him away. For a period of time, as the reality, as the, as the rain starts to stop and the reality sets in throughout the land. But we have to ask ourselves, right after announcing this, he's a prophet, God takes him away. And today we're going to read that God takes him away for a period of time and just removes him from all ministry, from all service. Because God had another 
thing that he wanted to do for him. And, and, and for those who are familiar with the story, we know that he shows up on Mount Carmel to battle with these 450 prophets of Baal. And we're going to see later, in the next several weeks, where the fire of God comes down and God shows a great victory. But God needed to prepare him for that, to get him ready for this battle that awaited him. And before he could be used publicly, God had to hone him privately. And that's how God works. He has to wean us of ourselves. He has to wean us from the world. He has to strip us of self before he can use us for his glory. He has to show his presence in our own life, first of all. I think of the story of Gideon. Gideon, this uh, magisterial judge who has this army gathered around him initially of 33,000 people, battling an army of 132,000 people, or roughly around that in the hundreds of thousands. But God says, you have too many, and weans his army down until it's just him and 300 men. He says, you had too many. Because God wants to show how great he is, not how great Gideon is. And with Elijah, he pulls Elijah away for a period of time to wean him, to hone him, to break him. And before God can use him, he has to work within him. Just like a sword can't be wielded until it's been hit on the anvil and pounded. A, A pottery can't be used until it's been honed out. So the same is with God's servants. He has to work within us to purify us, to wean us from the world and strip us of self before we can be used for great things in his kingdom. In essence, what he's doing is he's pulling Elijah away, and we're going to read about this, to God's boot camp. We know we have some military in here, ex-military. You, you remember what it was like being in boot camp, don't you? The shock and reality when you said in that first day. And, and what do you learn in boot camp? I mean, you learn to, learn to submit to authority. Who the authority is. You learn the skills of what it means to be a good soldier and combat techniques. And you learn it so well that when battle comes, you are prepared. It is not even, you're not even questioning it. Instinct takes over. Your training takes over. And then you can act. And that's what's going on with Elijah. Is God is bringing him into his boot camp to train him to hear his voice. And his voice alone. Not his own, but his voice. And learn the skills necessary to bring his people, God's people, back to himself. So he has to purify him. This is what we're going to read about today. So I would ask you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, It is our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the honor of reading God's Word. So I would invite you to stand now and follow along with me as I read and then pray. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's ask for God's blessing on our time together, shall we? Our Father and our God, you alone are God. And Lord, we are thankful that you have worked through an individual such as Elijah. And Lord, according to your word, he was a man just like us, with a nature just like ours. 
Lord, we pray that we might draw encouragement from him, that we might see how you interacted with him in his life, how you directed them. And Lord, we pray that you continually guide us and help us to confront the Ahabs in our life, to be as faithful as he was. Lord, may we be encouraged today. May we be drawn closer to the Savior because of what he has done for us. Lord, may you make your word shine forth today in all its glory. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're talking about boot camp. We're going to try to break this down piece by piece. And the first thing that we're going to see here is the assignment of boot camp. This is where Elijah was assigned to go. It's to go to the brook Cherith. That's what we see in the first verse. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, we, we see the explanation, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. See, God always must call us from what we know before he will use us for his purposes. He has to break us, to purify us. See, and the spiritual life can only be nurtured by leaving behind what we know. Depart from here. We must follow the command of God unequivocally, as Elijah did. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. He calls us to leave where we're at, to obey his call. God likes to take us out of our comfort zones. That's where we are to walk, not by sight, but by faith. Too often, we want everything lined up. We want to know exactly what we're doing. We want to have complete uh, safeguards. We want the bumpers of life. And God says, no. I'm calling you to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm calling you to leave what you know. I think of the call of Abraham in the book of Genesis. God says, leave your country and go to a land I will show you. Leave everything you know behind because I'm going to direct you. So God calls Elijah to go to this brook, Cherith, to leave behind everything that he knows. He's going to God's boot camp. That's what God does when he works within us. And it's been his modus operandi for most of his servants throughout time. I love how A.W. Pink, he was a Bible teacher in the mid-20th century, he said this, Every servant that God designs to use must pass through the trying experience of Cherith before he is ready for the triumph of Carmel. This is an unchanging principle in the ways of God. Joseph suffered the indignities of both the pit and the prison before he became governor of all Egypt, second only to the king himself. Moses spent one-third of his long life at the backside of the desert before Jehovah gave him the honor of leading his people out of the house of bondage. David had to learn the sufficiency of God's power on the farm before he went forth and slew Goliath in the sight of the assembled armies of Israel and the Philistines. Thus it was, too, with the perfect servant. Thirty years of seclusion and silence before he became his brief public ministry. So too with the chief of his ambassadors, Paul. A season in the solitudes of Arabia was his apprenticeship before he became the apostle to the Gentiles. See, God's servants all go through this period of refinement. To be on the anvil, to be pounded, or on the potter's wheel to be honed out. Everything removed from us, or the crucible to remove any impurities. God will use whatever instrument he sees fit to prepare his servants for his purposes. And it's the same with Elijah. See, we know that Elijah was a man just like us, according to the book of James chapter 5. And we know that we are in need of training, refinement, equipping. God had a task to accomplish through Elijah, but before he could use him publicly, he had to hone him privately. 
So we're going to see here that this assignment to boot camp involves several things, and I'd like you just to follow along with me. First of all, it's God speaking. Verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him. We don't know exactly how the word of the Lord came to him. We don't know if he heard an audible voice, if it was in the prompting of his heart, or if it was according to the teaching of the word that he already knew. Because when he was speaking out uh, of the famine that was to come, he was speaking in harmony with judgments that God had already declared within the Old Testament and in the book of 1 Kings. We see that God had declared that his, when his people would turn from him and embrace idols, that it would be, there would be a vast famine in the land. And that's exactly what occurred. But God's word comes to him and says, Go! And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here. Go to the brook of Cherith. Now, he's listening to the voice of God. He wasn't just going out into the wilderness to have this Henry David Thoreau experience. Out in Walden Pond. Remember that? Did you have to read that in high school? I did. I remember I was one of those little reading geeks. Me and my buddies. We decided when we were seniors in high school, we were going to fill up our car, which we had a Ford Festiva. So you don't have a lot of books to fill up a Ford Festiva. And we were going to Colorado for our spring break trip, not to party, but to read. <laughs> That's how geeky we were. All right? So we did. We loaded up with MREs, filled it up, had a couple destinations, and went all the way to Denver, Colorado, and then to Boulder, Colorado. And what did we do when we were in Boulder, Colorado? Did we go see the sights and climb the mountains? No, we hung out at Barnes & Noble. That's how dorky we were. But we did it because we wanted to read all of these books of literature and experience all this stuff. And, and we thought we were going to experience nature and all these. Just, they were just dumb. <laughs> dumb things. Because we wanted to have this great experience. See, that's not what Elijah's doing. He's going out into the wilderness because God has directed him to go out into the wilderness, to go to the brook of Cherith. God is, he's going directly at the word of the Lord. He's not, he's not trying to second guess. He's not trying to add to it. He's doing exactly what God told him to do. Now, this brook Cherith, what is this brook Cherith? Well, it's a symbolic spot. That's the next point in your notes. The brook Cherith, the word Cherith simply means the cutting place. So in essence, he's going there to be cut, to be honed to be purified. So it's a symbolic place. And what's going to happen there? Is he going to be with a lot of people? No. He's going to be by himself in solitude. That's the next part. God takes us away from everything we know so we can spend time with him. When's the last time that you've taken time to be quiet before God? I mean, many of us, we can't even, we can't hear the voice of God because we're so busy filling our ears with everything else. I mean, we can have our television on and leave the TV. We can go do dishes. We can, you know, we can turn on the television there. We get in our car. We hear the radio. I mean, I even go to some sports restaurants, and you walk in the bathroom, at least the men's bathroom, and there are TVs. We're surrounded all the time. Satellites, cell phones. We can be connected 24-7 all the time. But we need to purify, to stop, to be able to hear the voice of God. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Or Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, one of my favorite verses. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Or as, the, as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We need to be able to perfect the art of hearing the voice of God. To listen. To still and quiet our souls. We can get busy doing so many things. We are so busy. 
That's why time is our most valuable asset. I mean, think about it. You're, we're all constantly in need of time. And we have all these time supposedly time-saving gadgets that are helped to give us more time, but yet we still never have enough time. How is that? All of these things that are supposed to save us time and make our life easier just makes it more filled and more complex. Sometimes we need to step away and hear the voice of God. And Elijah needed to hear the voice of the Lord. He needed to go away, be solitude, no one else to be around, to be in solitude, which had to have been extremely hard for him, considering he's a prophet. And a prophet has to speak to people. And how is he going to be able to be a prophet if there's no one to speak to? Because God's pulling him away and says, you need to hear my voice before you can be my mouthpiece. You have to hear my voice clearly. So he calls him away to the symbolic spot to be alone with him. For how long? The text doesn't say. It just says a certain span of time. He didn't know how long he would be there for. It's not like boot camp lasts so many weeks. He didn't know. He just goes. And he's being fed daily by the ravens. So he's there for a certain span of time. And he was there until, as we read in verse 7, the brook dried up. Now, some scholars differ. They don't know how long that would have taken. Some surmise that it could have been a year or a year and a half. Uh, we don't know. But he was there until it dried up. So it was an indefinite period of time by himself, only interacting with ravens day in and day out, purifying his soul. Now, next, we can see him going to boot camp involves some serious steps of obedience. Serious steps of obedience. He did what the Lord told him to do. Verse 2, look at the commands that God gives. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook. And what is Elijah's response? Look at verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook. He obeyed. He was obeying the commands of God. He was obedient to everything God told him to do, even if it didn't make sense. Are we ready to be obedient to what God has called us to do? Are you obedient to the command of God, or have you just glossed it over, let it pass in one ear and out the other? Are you doing what God has directed you to do in your marriage, in your home? Are you pursuing the ministry and the purpose for which God has made you? Are you speaking to that person in your workplace or in your family? Are you praying? Are you being obedient to what God has placed before you? Are we all? being obedient. So we can see that, in this, that going to God's boot camp involved some serious steps of obedience. He was walking by faith, not by sight. We can also see here that as Elijah is in God's boot camp, he receives God's supply. He goes in God's direction, and God supplies his need. Look at verse 4. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. The ravens was God's supply. God commanded the ravens to bring him bread and meat twice daily. He was completely dependent upon God. He didn't get a choice in the food. He didn't get a choice when it would come. He simply knew that God was taking care of of his needs. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my own life 
when this has been true, when God has brought metaphorical ravens in my own life, and I've shared that many times in here, how God's people have supplied my needs when I had no place else to go except to depend on Him. I, could re- I wanted to rely on so many things. I wanted to rely on my own zeal for God. The ministry, the, the doctrine that I held to be so pure. I wanted to rely on the schools that I went to and the people that I knew. And God said, no, 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 no. 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 It's about me. Don't look to any of those things. You can't depend on anything else except my relationship with you. And I also supply your needs. And it was amazing to me how much these other things had become idols in my life. As one thing was taken away and another thing was taken away. And every time something else was taken away, I got more and more nervous. Because I was totally dependent upon God. And the the God that I talked about and preached so much about, I was becoming face-to-face and I was terrified because I realized that I wasn't dependent upon the Lord like I had said. I was dependent upon all these other things. It's when life had started to break me that I started to see where my real trust was. See, that's what happens in the time of God's boot camp. We're being purified where we are able to see who it is we're really dependent upon. Are we looking to ourselves? I mean, we have a very American way of doing things, even in our Christian walk. For all intents and purposes, we say that Jesus saves us, and then we live in such a way that we save ourselves. We don't let God sanctify us and work within us. We can do it ourselves, thank you very much. We have this very independent, democratic spirit that we try to mesh with Christianity and we try to make it fit together, and they don't always go together. Because we come to God, we have to come to God hopeless, broken, before God can fill us with Himself. We can't do it on our own. God will bring us until the end of all of our resources, the end of our self-righteousness, the end of our self-sufficiency to show us that we can't be, we can't do it without Him. And that's what He's doing in Elijah's life. He's saying, you know what? You don't have anything to offer. I've got everything to offer. I've got everything to offer. I think of the story of the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon the great pastor in the 19th century. By the age of 19, he was preaching to a 5,000-member church every week. His sermons were being published around the world during his lifetime. He started over 2,000 ministries in his life. Short little guy. I mean, five foot four, kind of had a little Amish beard going on. And uh, he, he had gout, so I like him a lot. Um, for those who don't know, I have gout, so I make some, when I first heard that, I was talking to a friend of mine named Jeff Malis, for those of you who know him, and he laughed. He said, when you found out you had gout, did you go, oh, no, I'm too young to have gout, or, yeah, Spurgeon had gout. I said, Spurgeon had gout. That's what I, I was excited about that, because there was this great man of God. Now, this great man of God started a Bible college, or a, a pastor's training college, and he tells us there's a story told about him where this young pastor comes into his office and says to him, he says, Mr. Spurgeon, you need me in your pastor's school, and I want to be in your pastor's school. He says, why do we need you in this pastor's school? He says, because I'm, God has gifted me to preach. He says, really? He says, yes, I am. He goes, give me a passage. I can preach any passage you want me to preach. I'll preach it right now. And he says, I'm sorry, son. You can't, you can't, you can't be entered into our school. You can't be a student. He says, why? He says, because you already know everything. There's nothing that we could teach you. See, God wants to do that within each one of us. And we've all been there. 
We've all been there, where we thought we knew it all until God takes us to the, the wilderness and shows us what we, what we really know is not what we thought we knew. We need to know who He is. And God supplies His needs. God was working in His life. Now, I'd like us to see that there are some great advantages to being in God's boot camp. Some great advantages to being in God's boot camp. First of all, this was the, this was what, what the first thing was God's protection. God's protection. And also, God's preparation. God's preparation. Now, protection from what? Remember, after he had confronted Ahab, I'm sure that Ahab at first glance didn't take him seriously. But as... The, the reservoirs were drying up, the cisterns were going, the wells were drying up. I'm sure he's, he started to get paying attention. He said, I need to find that guy. And we learn in 1 uh, Kings chapter 18 that he sent his servants all over the country to find Elijah. And not only, but he was crossing borders. He was even going to other countries saying, is Elijah here? And he would make them utter an oath that Elijah wasn't there. So he was looking for Elijah. And we know that his wife had already issued a proclamation where she was putting to death the prophets of God. We're going to hear about that in uh, the next several weeks under the, uh, Obadiah. Obadiah, not the prophet Obadiah, the book uh, through whom we have the name, but a different Obadiah where Obadiah is working for King Ahab in his court, but he is a follower of the Lord. And he is protecting God's prophets, and he hides them in caves by fifties as the, her death warrant, Jezebel's death warrant, is being issued and fulfilled. He's hiding them away, and he is feeding them out of his own money. In essence, Obadiah is kind of like an ancient Oscar Schindler. Is he's protecting the Jewish people, these prophets, from Jezebel's vicious claws. So, he is being protected. God is putting him in his boot camp to protect him. So he's protecting his prophet, but he's also protecting his plan. That's not in your notes, but he's, he's protecting his plan because God's plan was to work through Elijah to bring back his people to himself. He was preparing him, preparing the man for what he had for him. Now this preparation involved two things, and this isn't in your notes either. But you can write this down. The first is this, discipline. He was learning what it means to, to wait, to be patient. Do you have a hard time waiting? I do. I am guilty of it just like anybody else, probably more so. And in our culture, it fosters not waiting. We have faster phones, downloads now, computers make everything happen immediately we don't have to wait for anything but God pulls us aside and shows that all of the technology all of the advancements mean nothing if he's not in it I mean we can have a great show we can have a great band we can have all of these great things at our church but it doesn't matter if God's not in it unless the Lord builds the house the builders labor in vain who build it and though it's referring to a physical house or not a physical house but a, a someone's home church is still the same. Unless God is the foundation, it means nothing. I was speaking at AU uh, on Thursday night, and I was talking about the Bible. We were going through their doctrinal statement. I was talking about the Bible, and I said to them, I said, if you're at a church where this word isn't being preached, you need to find another church because it's really not a church. 
Because it's the Word of God that is inspired, that is alive. God draws us into Himself. He wants, invites us to commune as we read the Word of God. We are being transformed because the Word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. See, God's plan was to protect him and then prepare him. He was learning discipline, but he was also learning dependence. Learn what it meant to depend on God for everything. I'm, I'm amazed at how the same process has worked out in so many other saints of God's life. God wants us to learn to wait upon him. It's a discipline. We can't go ahead with our own agenda. We must wait on God's timing. We're an instantaneous drive through download. There's an app for that generation. But none of our gadgets, technological advancements, or achievements can replace hearing the voice of God and seeing the hand of Almighty God. And as our world continues to become smaller through globalization and wickedness becomes more and more prevalent and hostile to the gospel, it becomes even more essential to go and spend time with the Lord, to hear His voice. We must be, learn to be like the psalmist who said, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Psalm 31, 131, verse 2. If we're to ever be used of God, we must learn to hear the voice of God through reading His Word, through hearing His Word preached, and prayer. As I've said before, before God can use us publicly, He must hone and transform us privately. So we can uh, see that the, this uh, assignment, this boot camp, we've seen the advantages. Now we're going to examine the adversity that comes in boot camp. For those that have been in boot camp, did you experience adversity? Yes. And it's the same with Elijah. Look at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The brook dries up. Now, I'd like to try and think about this a little bit more intentionally. He's obeyed God. Think about this for a moment. He has done everything he was supposed to do. He's seen God work, which would inevitably show God's blessing. But what's the result? He confronts Ahab. He goes where God told him to go. God supplies the food, but what happens? The brook dries up. The brook dries up. It's supposed to be, for most of us, it's A plus B equals C. But here, in, in a way, it's A plus B equals F. I'm sure he was wondering, I'm obeying you, God. Why am I thirsty? Why am I going through this? What's going on here? See, I believe it's the principle illustrated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. When Jesus says of God the Father, For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, it's not just the righteous who receives rain, but the unrighteous too. But here it's the opposite. God withholds the rain from the unrighteous, but in the same vein, the righteous are suffering the same action of this. Now what does that mean? Sometimes bad happens to good people. Some of it, we don't like to think of it that way. We think we put our ATM card of obedience, or the ATM card of God, into the, the uh, obedience of who God is, you know, and we continually make deposits of obedience. And we say, God, we want to withdraw a blessing. And while that does happen, and it's not always so, bad things happen to good people all the time. People die. Spouses get cancer. Children pass away in accidents. We don't like that. It doesn't make sense, but God is sovereign. We don't understand why He does all that He does. 
But we trust in him because we know that he is good. His ways, as he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. I'm sure Job had the same question. God, I've done everything that you asked me to do. I obeyed you. I made sacrifices to you. Matter of fact, I cared about you so much that I thought if my kids were messing up, I made sacrifices for them. And what happens? He loses in a day. He loses his family. He loses his career. He loses his business. And then he loses his health at one moment in time. Now, we aren't privy. I'm sure he wasn't privy to understand that it was a cosmic battle going on between Satan and God. We are given that privilege to see. But as he was experiencing it, I'm sure he didn't know. And many of us, we don't know. We don't understand that even sometimes our prayers, we can be affected by our prayers. That's the, I, I can't imagine what Elijah was dealing with. He had prayed that it wouldn't rain, and then it didn't rain, and then he himself is experiencing it. And after he leaves Cherith, we're going to see later, and when he encounters the widow of Zarephath next week, I mean, people are dying because of this. I can't imagine what he felt inside as he saw people, children, starving, going without thirst. I mean, we have to think about this in the full context, get the full weight of what was going on and what was happening. We don't know what to say, but we trust. And we rely on what the Scripture does teach. We don't understand some of these mysteries. But we do understand that there are some biblical principles that we can remember during difficult times, that we cling to. And here's one. God is attentive to our needs. He is attentive to our needs. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom, first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God takes care of our needs, but we also remember, need to remember that God addresses the needs of His people differently. He addresses the needs of His people differently. For Elijah, He gave supernatural means. But we also must remember that there were other believers that were affected by the famine at that time. In 1 Kings 18, we read about Obadiah, whom I just mentioned a few moments ago, who loved and followed the Lord, but who worked for Ahab. And he hid the prophets of the Lord and fed them himself. So Elijah is receiving supernatural means of provision, while these prophets are receiving more of a natural means through the people of God, another servant of God. I don't know about you, but I've had some Obadiahs in my life where they came alongside, they had the means to help me when I needed it. Some of you are those Obadiahs. Some of you feel that inclination where God is telling you right now, I need to be helping someone else in need, and you have the means to do it. You should. I remember I've talked to you many different times about this man who's, helped, uh, who's been a raven. I call him a raven in my life. 
who helped us during a time when I was getting ready to go into seminary. I had been in ministry, and I felt God leading me to seminary, and he had heard about our, our situation, and God told him to help supply our financial needs. And he ended up did. There's a big, giant story I would recommend. It's online if you want to check it out. It's in the tool shed. But another time, when we moved back, we moved to New England, we came back, and I didn't actually know who he was. I met him at church on Sunday morning, uh, and uh, I still didn't know who he was. He knew who I was. He'd seen me preach when I was in Chicago, and I was living in the northern suburbs at the time, and God told him to speak to me, to introduce himself to me. And I didn't know this and, uh, until much later, and uh, we connected, and he was telling me, he said, you know, God told me to, to help you. I said, did he? He said, yeah, no, he did. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, I was sitting in my car on Lake Cook Road in Deerfield, and God was directing me and prompting me to go talk to you. I said, really? And he goes, I'm not going to do it, God. And he said, he said, he goes, I kid you not. I looked over. I'm at a stoplight. I looked over, and you're in the next car. <laughs> True story. I, was, I, was, I borrowed somebody else's car that day. It was a, a friend of ours. It was, it was an old Mercedes. And I'm sitting there, and he goes, okay, God, I'll do it. <laughs> And that, that man has helped us many different times. And I told him, I said, you know, if, if you wouldn't have helped us, we wouldn't have made it. And he goes, no, God would have raised somebody else up. And I remember telling him the story about the ravens. And he said, I said, you're a raven in my life. And he goes, I like that. I'm a raven. See, God supplies sometimes the ravens with supernatural means. But other times he, apply, he gives us the Obadiahs to come alongside. Now, see, I, the way I look at it, there's, he addresses the needs of his people in different ways. But God addresses his needs of his people. And as far as I can tell, there were three groups of people that we need to think about during this time. There were those who died because of the famine. This is the bad things that happen to good people. I mean, we're going to think of this, look at this widow next week. She was preparing a meal for her and her son because she was going to die. It was her last meal. There were individuals like that. There were the prophets of Obadiah that God had taken care of. And then there's Elijah. God helped Elijah supernaturally, and through Obadiah took care of the prophets of God, but there were some that died during that famine. We don't see that necessarily in the text, but I'm sure people died because of it. Now, we can also see here that sometimes our answered prayers affect us negatively. Sometimes our answered prayers affect us negatively. Sometimes we pray for something, and we don't like the result because how it affects us. He prayed for something, and it became a trial, in essence, because he himself, was experiencing the loss. I mean, God had supplied the food, but I'm wondering what he thought each day as that brook began to dry up. It became less and less. It wasn't bubbling. It became a trickle, and then it was just mud. I wonder what he was thinking. But he trusted, and he still had faith in the middle of, the middle of it all. Remember, this whole thing happened at Elijah's word, and here the brook dries up. He's affected by his prayer, and sometimes our answered prayers can affect us negatively. We also need to remember this, that the God who gives also takes away. The God who gives also takes away. I mentioned Job earlier. After everything happened to Job, what did he say? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How he could say that after everything he experienced is beyond me. What faith to have all ten of your kids die. Some of you have experienced burying your child. It's the most painful process. I've heard many parents tell me, they said, you don't expect to bury your children. 
And for him to bury ten of them had to have been the most heart-wrenching thing. And then to have even his wife say, curse God and die. Are you still holding fast to your integrity? And he says, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not bad? Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, even as his health was, was gone away, the vitality of youth, and he was taking, a, it says, a potsherd, and he was scraping his skin. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can't fathom that. Even says in, in Job that he goes, my breath stinks. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. As he was going through all of this, and all those three, uh, the three counselors sat around him and said all the bad that he did, he still did not curse God. It's amazing. The God who gives also takes away. It's God's sovereign right. God is in heaven. We are on our earth. He is a creator. We are the creation. God gives and God takes away. For Elijah, God gave him the brook for a time and then took it away. The important thing we need to remember and keep in front of us is to continue away no matter what he does. That's the step in life of faith. And last but not least, we can see the removal from active duty. Because he got old from being a prophet dealing with God. Removal from active duty is never fun, but it's needed. It's never fun, but God rejoices in duty and in boot camp. What experience was necessary because he'd be weaned, be stripped to soul to us, God, and work trust him implicitly. God gave us from active duty for a while. He is yet to hone, shape, and forge us to be of greater use for his kingdom and his purposes. How about you? Do you feel like you're in God's boot camp right now? Sometimes I like to think of it more as being on the anvil. Do you feel like you were being pounded? Or you're being stripped of pain in life? Maybe you're, you're experiencing that right now at your work. Do you feel like you're just being pounded? Or maybe you feel like your, your brook is dried up. You may have honored God and the brook is drying up. You might have honored God in your marriage and it's drying up. You might have honored God with your kids and you feel it drying up. You might have honored God at your work or at your school or in your relationships. You've honored God even with your money and you feel like, what is going on? Why is the brook drying up? God says, trust me. I'm doing something that you may not understand. But at the end of this, you're going to have a greater trust in me. We don't like being on the anvil. We don't be, like being pulled away from active duty. I remember in my own life, this was extremely personal. I'd been in ministry, had some reasonable success, gone off to seminary, had more success at another church, and I thought I had a lot to offer. And then God pulled me from active duty, and he just broke me. He pulled away everything that I knew. We had, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't even get a, a part-time job. Uh, we were, in essence, almost living out of our van. We were living in friends' basements. It was the most humiliating time in my life. But God was doing something. He was weaning me off of everything that I knew to get alone with him. Even my preconceived notions, I thought if I had the right belief, I had the right teachers, I had the right school, I had the right doctrine, then everything was going to go right. And that's not what it was. God said, no, even that can be an idol. I want you just to look at me to have an interaction with me, to obey what I tell you to do, and just hear my voice above everything else. And it was painful. I hated every second of it. It wasn't fun. Many of you understand exactly what I'm talking about. 
You know how much pain you feel. And you want to know where God's at. You know, even in the middle of that, God was merciful. And he showed himself to me in, in ways that I, I just said, I have to look to you and you alone. I remember being face down in tears. It was so painful. I thought, I can't provide for my family. My kids are sleeping on air mattresses and on, on cushions. I, I, I couldn't imagine what my wife was thinking. I was broken, humiliated. But God was doing that to show that I had, had an, I had an idol of what I could do. And he said, I'm going to show you what I can do, not what you can do. I'm going to break you of everything of that. And it taught me a lesson I will never forget. That God takes the little things of this world to make much, to magnify his name. But the moment that we think we are something in the sight of God, he will break us down. Because he doesn't want us to be made much of. He wants him to be made much of. He might dry up your brook. But you know, he's going to continue to supply your needs. He's going to be there. He hasn't changed. He's still God. He still loves you. He still went to the cross for you. He still cares for you that much. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. He wants to purify us. And he wants to use us. But before he can use us publicly... He wants to commune and teach us privately. Are you in God's boot camp right now? If you are, praise God. I know it's painful, but God is doing something in you that you can't even come out. You can't, you can't even realize right now. He wants to do something in your life where He receives glory, and He wants to use you to do it. That's why He's taking you there. And that's what He's doing Elijah's life, and he will continue to do it day in and day out for his glory and the honor of his name. Let's close our message time in prayer. Lord, I don't begin to understand the mysteries contained within your word. I don't understand sometimes why bad things happen to good people. I don't understand how painful things like this can benefit us, but yet, Lord, we trust in you because we know that you are good and that you are loving and that you are merciful and you are righteous. And, Lord, you give us grace. But, Lord, may we be like Elijah in that we trust in you, we obey you, even when the brook dries up even in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of humiliation, may we trust in you. May we look to you. Lord, break us to build us up. Take us to your boot camp that we might be transformed and be of greater use to your kingdom. Lord, we long to see your hand at work in our lives, in the lives of our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our community. Lord, do whatever means necessary to bring us to yourself, to use us, that your name might be made much in this place. That when all who hear about what you're doing in our midst, in our lives, in this church, they may not praise any one person, but they might praise the one true God. Lord, may you be high and lifted up in our midst. May you revive our hearts. May you do whatever needs to happen to bring us to yourself, that we might joyously radiate what you mean to us and other people might be drawn to Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.